This is Africa Digest. Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting live from Johannesburg on the frequencies 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. I'm your host. My name is Khobedi Wanamani. With me is Amanda Machaka and Tamit Uza. On our top stories, this hour, Egypt demands lifting of its AU suspension and Malawi kicks off voter registration drive. In our economics news this hour, South African arms manufacturer clinches deal that will enable it to grow in both local and international markets. And in our sporting update, Cricket South Africa hails the appointment of Harun Logot as its CEO. All these and more coming up, but first it's time for the news. Here is Amanda. Good evening. African nations have launched an investigation into allegations by Sudan and South Sudan that they are supporting rebels operating in each other's territory. The African Union and East African Bloc, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, launched the investigative panel in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. The three senior military officers making up the panel will begin their work immediately. This comes about two weeks before an August 7 deadline from Khartoum to shut down a pipeline carrying South Sudanese oil for export. Voter registration has started in Malawi for elections scheduled for the 24th of May next year. World councillors, members of parliament and a president will be elected. Electoral Commission spokesperson Sangwani Mafuriwa explains. Uh, we have started the registration this morning, 22nd July, in the five districts, which are Sanji, Chikwawa, Mwanza, Nenu. And then we have two constituencies in Blanta City, which are Blanta City West and Blanta Kabula. Uh, we have said it so quite so, fine, so well. Uh, the turnout during the opening this morning was quite, was quite satisfactory. Uh, we are very optimistic that we'll have a very successful voter registration exercise. A cholera epidemic in Burundi has killed at least 17 people in 10 months. Director General of Public Health Libo Ngirigi says Burundi has been affected since last October by the cholera. It says a lack of adequate information meant some residents were not seeking treatment fast enough for the disease, which spreads mainly because of a lack of safe drinking water and access to toilets. The epidemic first appeared in the northern districts of the capital, Bujumbura, but also along Lake Tanganyika and northwestern provinces before spreading across the entire country. South Africa's ruling ANC has refused to be drawn on the muzzling of Zimbabwe facilitation team team member Lindy Wezulu by the presidency. The presidency issued a statement on Sunday essentially preventing anyone except President Jacob Zuma from making statements with regards to matters relating to the political events in Zimbabwe. Its move comes after Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe slammed Zulu during his campaign trail, calling her an idiotic street woman. Zulu has been vocal about the need for reforms in the troubled neighboring state, which holds elections in just over 
a week. ANC Secretary-General Gwede Mandasha has confirmed that Zulu was tasked with communication and diplomacy within their facilitation team. As she has done that work, there were misgivings on some aspects. The President has reacted to the issue. And if I, I read the reaction of the President is that it would have been more sensitive to confer with each other all the time with that issue because logically there would be sensitivities. And I think that issue is being handled at that level. I don't think at the level of the ANC we must venture into that level. And finally, former South African President Nelson Mandela is still in a critical condition in hospital but shows sustained improvement. President Jacob Zuma has announced this after visiting Madiba in the Pretoria Hard Hospital this afternoon. Zuma says this year's birthday celebrations for the former president last Thursday, the 18th of July, were the biggest ever. Presidential spokesperson Meg Maharaj says President Zuma has appealed to South Africans to keep Madiba in their thoughts and prayers. Former President Nelson Mandela is still in a critical condition in hospital, but shows sustained improvement. President Jacob Zuma visited him in hospital this afternoon. The president once again assured Madiba of the love and support of all South Africans. President Zuma also shared with Madiba a message from the family of former ANC President Chief Albert Lutuli, who led the ANC during the period that former President Mandela was arrested. President Zuma has reiterated his call to the nation to keep Madiba in their thoughts and prayers. That's the news at this hour. And on to our stories, Egypt has accused the African Union of suspending it unfairly. A special envoy of the country's interim president, Mona Omar, while on an official visit to the AU today, claimed that there is nothing unconstitutional about the demands of the Egyptian people. In a meeting with AU Commission Chair Dr. Nkosazana Lamini Zuma, the special envoy said Egypt deserves to have its position back. Egypt was suspended from the AU last month after the overthrow of Mohamed Morsi as president. Kaleta Wanjohi reports. Egypt is demanding to be readmitted into the African Union, citing unfairness in the procedure that was followed to have it suspended. Cairo insists that the Peace and Security Council of the African Union did not fully understand the activities in Egypt before making the tough decision against it. While meeting the chairperson of the African Union Commission, Dr. Dlamini Zuma, at the African Union headquarters in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa, the special envoy to Egypt's interim president, Mona Omar, voiced Cairo's demands. That we are concerned and we regret the decision taken by the Peace and Security Council on the situation in Egypt because it, uh, it was based on a kind of misunderstanding of the real situation in Egypt. So we came to explain and to say that the revolution that took place in Egypt was a popular uprising, nothing of an unconstitutional change. According to Cairo, the mass demonstration that led to the overthrow of Morsi as Egypt's president was just but an exhibition of the people's constitutional demands. The special envoy Mona Omar says that the African Union should have respected these. In response to her quest, the African Union says it will wait for results from a high-level panel that is to visit Egypt to investigate the situation on the ground, then report back to the Commission.
The chairperson of African Union Commission, Dr. Dlamini Zuma, says that only after the results from this panel has been fully analyzed will a decision be made on the status of Egypt at the African Union. We can take a decision before the panel comes. And the panel will report to the peace and security because it's the peace and security that instructed that it should be formed. And then they will give the information they would have gathered and we'll take it from there. Special Envoy Mona Omar, however, says that Egypt deserved to have this panel before the decision to suspend it was made, and not now when the damage has already been done. We hope that when this panel come and see the situation on the ground, we take the right decision that this is a constitutional change taking place in Egypt, that this is a popular demand, and that this is the right way. Egypt says it already has a roadmap for elections that will see the people elect another president of their choice. Egypt was suspended from participating in the activities of the African Union in June this year after the overthrow of Mohamed Morsi as president and the military takeover of the state. The African Union termed the action as unconstitutional and decided not to be associated with it. Koleton Johi, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. New Egyptian authorities are sending into Luanda on Monday a special envoy to request support to the just sworn in government of Cairo. Speaking to Channel Africa, Director for Africa Affairs of the Angolan Foreign Affairs Ministry said that the visit is part of a three-country trip that the Egyptian is carrying out that will include South Africa and Nigeria. Ambassador Espirito Santos confirmed the visit and said the special envoy will also present the current situation in Egypt to the Angolan authorities. Here's a report by Phil Nello. We have been following up closely the situation in Egypt. This is a situation that has disturbed the normality of things in that African nation. The African Union Peace and Security Council held a meeting and decided to suspend Egypt as a result of the most recent crisis in their country. Now, Egypt is carrying out a diplomatic offensive to explain the new reality of the country and the reasons that led to this situation. Thus, Cairo is sending special envoy to Angola, South Africa and Nigeria because these are countries with strong voices in the African continent to get the support from these nations and make them understand about the new situation in that African country. Ambassador Spiritu Santos also said that Angola upholds the African Union position that Egypt is under unconstitutional order and defends dialogue for the end of the crisis. Of course, we consider that Egypt is under unconstitutional situation because President Morsi was democratically elected, but we are also aware of the public protest that led the military leaders to take action. In any event, this action was condemned by the African continent peace and security body, including Angola, which then decided to impose sanctions on Egypt so it is not allowed to take part in the African Union activities so that until the Egyptian authorities restore the democratic constitutional order. There was the translation of the remarks by Angolan Director for African Affairs of the Foreign Affairs Ministry. Meanwhile, Angolan International Relations Specialist Francisco da Cruz says this visit reaffirms that Angola 
plays an important role for peace and stability in Africa. This position by Egypt recognizes and reaffirms Angola as an important partner for peace and stability in Africa, mainly because the government in Egypt is not being accepted by some Muslim circles in Africa due to the Muslim Brotherhood pressure. Thus, Angolan government as a regional powerhouse is called upon to take action as a leader for defense, security and stability on the continent of Africa, so it can promote dialogue and diplomacy as a way to resolve the conflict. The specialist says that Angola has always been playing a role against religion-based violence. Thus, he thinks that Angola will suggest Egyptians to start dialogue. The government is following up all this situation and what it has been reiterating is that it is for stability and peace on the continent of Africa and reaffirms dialogue as a way to resolve the conflicts in Africa. And on international differences, dialogue should be the way forward and not religious-based violence. Egypt continues to be an important country, being a powerhouse in Africa. But there is a huge problem. Its army does not fully respect internal civilian authorities because it is funded by the United States. There was a translation of the analysis on the situation in Egypt by the Angolan International Relations Specialist Francisco da Cruz, speaking about the coming to Luanda of the Egyptian special envoy to request support from Angola to the new authorities of Cairo. Phil Nelu, Channel Africa, Angola. Today saw the start of voter registration in Malawi for the elections scheduled for the 24th of May next year. What councillors, members of parliament and a president will be elected? Martin Lelemba on that story. The registration exercise commences at a time as most civil societies are accredited to conduct voter and civic education have not mobilized resources to implement their activities. Mr. Sangwan Mwafuriwa is Malawi Electoral Commission spokesperson explains more. Uh, we have started registration this morning, on 22nd July, in the five districts, which are Sanji, Chikwawa, Mwanza, Neno, and then we have two constituencies in Blanta City, which are Blanta City West and Blanta Kabula. Uh, we have started so quite so fine, so well. Uh, the turnout during the opening this morning was quite, was quite satisfactory. Uh, we are very optimistic that we will have a very successful voter registration exercise. Looking towards the funding to other organizations who haven't yet uh, received, as a electoral body, what are you doing to expire this challenge? As my Electoral Commission, we are aware that there is a challenge with several civil society organizations that are unable to conduct civic and voter education activities because they haven't received the funding. So what we did was we came up with an intensive civic and voter education campaign. They are getting the five districts where registration has begun today. And if you look at the turnout we have had today, it has it's indicating that the civic education that we came up with is really paying dividends. However, I should also emphasize or be quick to say that we still need the civil society on the ground. The registration has either 
state is going to run for 10 phases up to January next year. We are optimistic that these civil society organizations who are accredited, they should be able to gain the funding at any time and they should and will be able to join us in the campaign. But don't you see that this is a setback towards the uh, elections uh, of 2014? Uh, at the moment, the situation is manageable. That's Mr. Sangwani Mafuriwa, Malawi Electoral Commission spokesperson, reporting for Channel Africa in Malawi. This is Martin Mleremba. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. South Africa's Department of Higher Education has launched a forum for entrepreneurship development centers to develop the country's universities as entrepreneurship and innovation centers. Due to the high levels of youth unemployment, the initiative seeks to reduce poverty through stimulating universities as hotbeds of entrepreneurship. Research shows that entrepreneurship education can have a positive impact on economic growth. The department says it seeks to create and support of job creators as opposed to job seekers. Here's more from Dr. Teddy Bletcher, chairperson at the Department of Higher Education and the Human Resources Development Council. For the first time, we brought across all the universities from across South Africa come together in the spirit of developing entrepreneurial centers and entrepreneurial programs across all of our universities so that in every way we can be stimulating the spirit of entrepreneurship and innovation amongst the students coming to South Africa's universities and in this way ultimately have an impact on many more new businesses being created and also being better run and sustained so that we can bring more people out of poverty, create more jobs in South Africa. And we had actually 19 out of 21 of the public universities of South Africa as well as the Department of Higher Education and Training. Now, um, South Africa struggles uh, with high levels of unemployment, um, particularly uh, that of youth unemployment. How is this forum going to help address that? We know the statistics in South Africa, 55% of black youth in the country in the census last year are unemployed. We know that 75% of unemployment is amongst the youth. Really, what we've analyzed is that we found that 70% of all working people in South Africa, so that's just over two-thirds of people who work, they work in a small business, and that's a business under 50 in size. If you include the informal sector, it's probably 85 to 90% of working people work in a small business. So what we need to do is we need to find those people in society who can build proper, strong, small businesses so that they, in turn, can employ these unemployed youth so that they can get their first job and second job and so on. And some of those unemployed youth would actually themselves make very good entrepreneurs and build also very good businesses once they've got a little bit of experience. So the idea is, is that the university sector, if you look around the world, it's people who've gone through universities that end up creating the most successful businesses in most cases. Obviously, there's a lot of exceptions. And you can talk about the Richard Bransons of the world and so on who dropped out of school, never mind even going to university. But in most cases, people who've gone through higher levels of education, have studied IT, technology, engineering, etc., etc., are much more able at a later date to build very successful businesses. And it's those successful businesses that in turn can employ everybody else. 
So we need more businesses and we need more successful businesses and we need the existing businesses that we already have in the country to be strengthened to become more successful. Now universities can also help there because universities can interact with the community around them and in these entrepreneurial centers they can help the local entrepreneurs and small businesses to become more successful. And of course, evidence has shown that education can have a positive impact on entrepreneurship rates as well as economic development. Exactly how is the Center for Entrepreneurship Development going to work? It's a federation for all the universities in the country, and that's exciting because it involves everybody. But now what we're trying to do is we're trying to say, how do we get every university to the top level, and how do we share best practice, how do we share curriculum, How do we share research that's being done? How do we have collaborative research? How do we find better models? How do we do things nationally? So, for example, we currently have a National Entrepreneurship Week for students ties in with the Global Entrepreneurship Week. It's set internationally by the Northern Hemisphere, and that takes place in November. Now, we know that South African students are actually studying in November. So we're saying, how do we create initiatives that are South Africa-wide that that can be world-class standards where our universities put their power together together with the Department of Higher Education and actually build something that's going to be better for everybody. And it's in that way that this collaboration is so powerful. And that was Dr. Teddy Bletcher, Chairperson at the Department of Higher Education and the Human Resources Development Council, talking there to Komozo Mopulani. Economically empowering young men and women will help reduce their vulnerability to HIV. This is according to International Labour Organization, ILO, which is currently running a program in Malawi which seeks to promote entrepreneurship amongst the nation's youth, with the majority of the country's predominantly youthful population making a living in the informal sector, they're frequently neglected in the national HIV prevention efforts, partly because they're often hard to reach. Elaborating more on the ILO's efforts in trying to tackle the HIV epidemic in Malawi is the organization's HIV and AIDS program director, Ellis Wadrago. Well, the idea that really justifies why the island should be and is present in Malawi and in so many other countries to deal with uh, HIV is that most people affected living with HIV are workers. And so HIV becomes also a workplace issue because this is the place where people can be reached and this is where messages can be passed on. This is where some activities can be carried out so that people change their behavior, understand their role in trying to stop the epidemic. And it's for that reason that we are intervening through the world of work in specific economic sectors where workers are most at risk. Elaborate more on the importance of promoting entrepreneurship as a way of changing behavior which puts people more at risk of contracting the disease. You know, when you hold a decent job, that is a job that provides you with a minimum of rights, that provides you with the income that you need to be able to cater for your family and for yourself, that provides you with the rights in debating the decisions that influence the life, then you are in a position to better deal with HIV. Having a job builds your, your resilience to HIV. And this is what we're trying to do. And what we are saying is that having a decent job with all that I mentioned, including social protection, helps you cope with any situation when you are confronted with HIV and AIDS. And this economic empowerment of people is key to fighting HIV. Now, I understand that ILO finds it also of much importance to try and reach out to the young people. Can you elaborate more on the program that's running in 
the country. The youth is actually a specific target group that we are looking at because, as you know, HIV is actually hitting this tranche of the population. What the ILO is doing, and this is complementary to what other partners are doing, is that we are encouraging and supporting countries in establishing programs that would provide young people with skills, entrepreneurial skills, so that in building their businesses, they are able to yield the necessary necessary resources for them to address HIV issues within their families, their communities. But at the same time, it also helps them know their rights better. And this also applies to women because we are not only looking at the youth generally, but we're making the difference between young girls and young men because they do not have the same needs. And the approach to these different populations should be targeted so that we actually address their needs. So looking at men and women, both youth is certainly a very strategic way of tackling HIV because it is through them mainly that the epidemic can be spread, but it is also through them that we can fight against stigma and discrimination, which are the most important obstacles to dealing with HIV. People don't go for testing, for example, because they fear discrimination. And because they fear discrimination and don't go for testing, particularly the youth, they are more likely to spread the epidemic and to be actually an obstacle. So we're looking at youth as part of the solution and agents of change. How has the response been from the youth in being part of such programs? The response has just been fantastic and actually what we are now trying to do and what we are telling the countries in our dealings with them, in our partnership, is that tackling the youth is certainly the smart thing to do. Wherever we were able to assist countries in organizing their youth, in making them very proactive in the fight against HIV through different channels, including economic empowerment, And particularly, whenever we were able to also bring in youth already living with HIV, this has yielded major changes in the spread of the epidemic, but also in the attitude of these youth vis-à-vis the other parts of the communities and the society in general. Elias Wadrago of the International Labour Organization on the line from Geneva, Switzerland, talking to Jane Matebula. Developed countries need to be industrious like ants. This is according to American economist Peter Blair Henry. In a new book, Third World Lessons for First World Growth, he remarks that for years, third world countries have offered advice to developing countries on the best path to growth and should now benefit from heeding some of their own advice. Countries that were formerly called third world countries have used discipline to turn themselves around and become the emerging markets that are driving today's global growth. In 2012, the advanced nations grew at 1.3%. The emerging markets are still growing very strongly at 5.5%. And so it really struck me that we're at a critical point in the global economy, and in order for us to achieve a more prosperous future, the first world needs to learn, uh, ironically, from the third world. You actually begin by arguing in your book that the reason why countries like Mexico and China and those who you used to call third world countries are doing so well now is because of discipline. What do you mean by that term? Do you mean austerity or do you mean something else? The critical thing to understand is that discipline does not mean fiscal austerity. Discipline means a sustained commitment to a pragmatic growth strategy that is vigilant and flexible and that values what's good for the country as a whole over what's good for any individual 
interest group, or person running for political office. When I think of discipline, I think of two key examples. Uh, on the one hand, you have the uh, quintessential third world ant and a first world grasshopper. So the, the third world ant, in the spirit of Aesop's fable of the grasshopper and the ant, uh, is Chile. Uh, and the first world grasshopper is the United States. In 2008, Chile's uh, fiscal surplus was at such a high level that the people of Chile actually burned in effigy Andres Velasco, the finance minister, in the streets of uh, Santiago because they wanted him to spend that money on the people. Minister Velasco refused to do that, uh, saying that this was money that the country needed to save for a rainy day. And when the global financial crisis hit and Chile went into recession, Chile was able to institute, I believe, a $4 billion tax cut package to stimulate the economy and to attend to the needs of the less fortunate. Contrast that to the United States. In 2001, uh, the United States had a record fiscal surplus and made a collective decision that the, the fiscal surplus was the, the people's money, in the words of uh, former President George W. Bush, and to return the fiscal surplus to the people. And of course, following the, the tax cuts, we ran into a series of shocks from 9-11 to the financial crisis that uh, gave us record deficits. And so by not saving when times were good, uh, we now have record debts uh, and deficits that we're dealing with. So uh, discipline in the context of fiscal policy I mean, is no more complicated than the story of the ant and the grasshopper. Saving uh, during good times so that you have something to draw down on in bad times. So what you're trying to say is that in actual fact those first world countries didn't adopt any kind of discipline. How come? Well, I think it's very often the case, as any parent can tell you, it's easier to say, do as I say and not as I do. First world countries uh, for a very long time professed and taught third world countries, now emerging markets, what it is they needed to do to get out of the difficult situation they found themselves in in the late 1970s and early 1980s. The third world, those countries became emerging market countries by implementing a set of policies that were taught to them by the first world, but the first world has largely forgotten the lessons that it taught the rest of the world. And so I think it's, I think it's very hard for countries that are rich countries to recognize and have the humility that, uh, in fact, there's much to learn from the pupils. Now let's go back to like the meat of the subject. Do you think that there's a one-fit-all growth or there's different ways to achieve a sort of foundation for growth? There are many paths to growth. There's not one size fits all. But all the countries that have successfully turned themselves around have been disciplined, whether it be a country like Korea, in which export-like growth is, is the key, or a country like Brazil, where getting rid of inflation is the key point. Every country is going to have a different path, but all the countries that have successfully turned themselves around have been disciplined. The second key point is, in addition to discipline, countries need clarity from their leaders. So third world countries became emerging markets when their leaders demonstrated a clear sense of commitment to a change of direction. Latin America in general, if you look at the data, it's very clear that uh, post-1994 Latin America made a key decision to move away from the past. And this is the, brings me to the third point. In addition to discipline, clarity, we need trust. And it's not that emerging markets have solved all of their problems, but over the last two or three decades, they've made tremendous progress, progress from which we can learn. But now we're at this very critical point in the global economy, which is will emerging markets continue down the disciplined path, and will first world countries join them in once again getting on the disciplined path? And in order for that to happen, we need to address what I call the trust deficit. As much talk as there is about fiscal deficits, in many, in many ways the trust deficit is more important. There's a trust deficit between emerging market governments 
and advanced country governments. Until leaders in the emerging markets have the kind of uh, validation of the discipline policies that they put in place by giving them a commensurate voice, until that happens, these leaders are going to have a very difficult time continuing to sell what are difficult discipline policies to their populace. That was Peter Blair Henry, a dean at the New York University Business School, talking to Lika Gay from the International Monetary Fund. It's 17.32 Central African time. You're listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's time now for our news headlines. Here's Amanda. Good evening. African nations have launched an investigation into allegations by Sudan and South Sudan that they are supporting rebels operating in each other's territory. The African Union and East African Bloc, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, launched the investigative panel in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. The three senior military officers making up the panel will begin their work immediately. A voter registration has started in Malawi for elections scheduled for the 24th of May next year. Ward councillors, members of parliament and a president will be elected. A cholera epidemic in Burundi has killed at least 17 people in 10 months. Director General of Public Health Libori Ingerigi says a lack of adequate information meant some residents were not seeking treatment fast enough for the disease, which spreads mainly because of a lack of safe drinking water and access to toilets. And South Africa's ruling ANC has refused to be drawn on the muzzling of Zimbabwe facilitation team member Lindiwe Zulu by the presidency. The presidency issued a statement on Sunday essentially preventing anyone except President Jacob Zuma from making statements with regards to matters relating to the political events in Zimbabwe. Its move comes after Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe slammed Zulu during his campaign trail, calling her an idiotic street woman. And those are news headlines. Moving on with our stories, on to some filming. The South African film industry has been rocked by the refusal of the country's Film and Publication Board, FPB, to classify the film of good report. The FPB... Uh, the FPB, rather, argues that the film is of a pornographic nature. The film was supposed to be the opener at the 34th Durban International Film Festival currently underway in the Guazulu Natal province. The filmmakers have since said they're going to take the board to the Constitutional Court. Here's to Dongobeni reporting. The opening night film of the 34th Durban International Film Festival, the much-anticipated of good report directed by Jamil X. T. Kubega, was refused classification by the Film and Publication Board, and as such, the festival was unable to screen it. Instead of the opening credits, these words were displayed on the screen. This film has been refused classification by the Film and Publication Board in terms of the Film and Publications Act of 1996. Unfortunately, we may not legally screen the film of good report, as doing so would constitute a criminal offense. This has since created a lot of debate in South Africa, with people questioning the board's motives and validity. The film tells the somber tale of a small town teacher with a penchant for young girls. 
The result is an hypnotically engaging journey into the soul of a mentally troubled man. The troubled Pakastole, a teacher, meets one of his pupils at a local tavern and soon after that an illicit affair ensues. Film producer Mark Orrid says they've received a lot of support from the public since the FPB refused to classify the film. A classification committee of the Film and Publication Board has refused classification for the film. The board says such a classification is based on Section 18.3 of the Film and Publications Act as amended. Spokesperson at FPB, Prince Mlemandrela Ndamase, explains. The Film and Publications Act clearly defines child pornography and within that definition, it defines the use of children in, in sexual activity or in sexual conduct in a film or movie or a game as illegal acts. And therefore, when we classify the film in terms of that particular act and the classification guidelines, they dictate to us that we should produce classification more so where there is a sex screen involving minors who are below the age of 18 in line with the Film and Publications Act. And that is why the refused classification was then awarded on this particular film. In terms of the law, our classification requirements have been satisfied and that is why we could not classify the film further in as far as the Film and Publication Board was concerned. Damasa says the board's decision not to view the whole film is within the legal framework. When someone fires a gun, you don't wait for them to kill somebody first if they fire that gun illegally. In terms of the act, it requires that when we come across such a scene that is illegal, we are not required to proceed further with the classification. And therefore, the classifiers had reached a conclusion at that particular point that the content was illegal and therefore, having gone forth with the classification would have been irrelevant because ultimately, they would have still have arrived at the same conclusion based on the scene that they thoroughly discussed and came to a ruling that it was child pornography and therefore illegal content. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Tutongo Beni in Johannesburg. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And on to health matters. The International Organization for Migration, IOM, has released a summary of initial findings of a study on health vulnerabilities of mixed migration flows from East Africa, the Horn of Africa, and the Great Lakes region to Southern Africa. The study was commissioned by the IOM in 2012 as a direct response to the growing phenomenon of mixed or irregular migration in the concerned regions. For more on the issue, here is the IOM's Southern Africa Regional Thematic Specialist on Counter-Trafficking and Assisted Voluntary Return, Yetna Getachew. Irregular migration is primarily a terminology that is used to describe a phenomenon by which migrants enter or stay in another country without complying with the law. That would mean they may have crossed the border without passports or travel documents, they may not have a visa, so on and so forth, or they may have crossed the border regularly, but having overstayed their visas, then they become irregular migrants. So it's primarily about complying with immigration regulations and laws. Mixed migration is very closely linked to irregular migration, but it describes a phenomenon by which a combination of various types of migrants travel together. 
and normally they are composed of refugees, asylum seekers, victims of trafficking, economic migrants, and accompanied minors. So it's a mix of all sorts of migrants traveling and taking the same route, being in the same flow. So those two are closely linked, but not exactly the same. And why has the study particularly focused on migration flows from the regions east, the Horn of Africa, and the Great Lakes to southern Africa? Is there a particular reason? There are a number of considerations for that. One, this particular source region is very significant. There are a number of flows originating from that region. One is towards the north through Sudan and Egypt and Libya of migrants trying to reach the European Union. The other is eastwards, migrants originating from the same area but going through the eastern parts of Ethiopia and Somalia and of course Djibouti as well across the Gulf of Aden to Yemen. And most of these are also trying to reach Saudi Arabia and the rest of the Gulf states in search of employment. The third of the major flows originating from the Horn of Africa and the Great Lakes region flows down south. These are migrants primarily trying to reach South Africa. We've been aware of this movement since 2008-2009. There are several concerns for the human security of people who are literally trekking down from southern parts of Ethiopia and south-central Somalia down to South Africa. So there are protection concerns. The source region itself is very significant. And additionally, governments in the regions have repeatedly called for more studies to understand what is happening, why are people coming to, how can we address these migration flows. So this study is prepared in response to these three major concerns. Take us through the key findings of the study in terms of the health vulnerabilities migrants face. The study is divided into two phases. The first phase is about the demography, the routes, the modus operandi of smugglers, primarily trying to understand who is coming and why they are coming, how they are coming. The second phase is the one which is focused on the health aspect. Now, at the moment, we have just completed the first phase and we are going into the second phase. So the findings we have now are more on the demographics, the routes and the means used by the migrants rather than their health vulnerabilities. Although we have, of course, seen quite a few significant health findings. Now, what we have seen is that most people are driven out of their places of origin by poverty, war, and violence. They are looking for opportunities. Most of them are trying to reach South Africa. Here we are looking at uh, rather dated statistics. Back in 2009, the number of people we were looking at were about 20,000 boys and men, mostly from East Africa trying to reach South Africa. Most of them, of course, just walk. Hardly anybody flies. That has changed. In our recent findings, we have seen quite a number of migrants are flying in, especially through Mozambique. But a large proportion are still working through Kenya, Tanzania, Malawi, Zambia, and Zimbabwe, and uh, trying to reach South Africa. Some countries were not so significant three or four years ago, such as Zambia. Now those are very active routes. The amount of money paid to smugglers has almost doubled. Corruption and complicity with government officials uh, seems to have uh, become even deeper, and smugglers seem to be more organized these days. The amount of time it takes migrants to come from the Horn of Africa to Southern Africa seems to have increased. There are certain factors that contribute to that, but the modes of transportation remain the same. I mean, apart from walking, people use trucks, and boats and these have of course resulted in some very highly publicized incidences whereby people have suffocated in trucks or boats have capsized and people have died. So these are some of the major findings. Health-wise, of course, we have seen that most of the migrants are affected. They show signs of trauma. There are severe mental issues. We have detected few cases of multi-drug resistance TB, 
but more of these findings will be coming through towards September or October when the study is completed. And finally, Yitna, what's the importance of these findings in terms of moving forward with regards to addressing the migration challenges in the regions concerned? Well, the significance is twofold. One is about irregular migration itself. Governments in the region have expressly said that they would like to address these irregular migration flows. There are security considerations, there are social cohesion considerations, there are, of course, social service provision considerations as well. Therefore, we would like to give governments in the region accurate information or data that would inform their policies and laws in addressing these migration patterns. We also would like to help them devise operations responses, things that they can do at the ground level based on evidence. The other significance is concerned with health. There are serious public health concerns. Governments need to understand what these are and in that respect as well the study will form the evidence basis for formulating policies, laws and at the same time practical steps that need to be taken by governments. Yetna Getachu, the International Organization for Migration's Regional Thematic Specialist on Counter-Trafficking and Assisted Voluntary Return in the Southern Africa Office, on the line from Pretoria talking to Jane Matebula. It is time now for our economics update. Here's Amanda. Good evening. South African arms manufacturer Danel says it has a significant order pipeline that will enable it to grow the business in both local and international markets. Today, the company reported a 10% increase in revenue for the year, whilst its net profit grew to $7 million. This is Danel's third successive growth in revenue. Figi Lemplontlo is Danel's financial director. If one looks at that revenue, one would see that the local revenue has stayed the same at slightly over $2 billion, but the export revenue has uh, substantially increased by 34% from $1.3 billion last year to about $1.7 billion. Last year, we mentioned that we had secured significant contracts, totaling $5 billion, in the Middle East area and the other portion to the Far East. South African Airways says the strike by Satao members has not had any impact on its operations at this point. The airline says it's operating normally throughout the country. SA earlier unilaterally implemented a 6.25% wage increase, after which the union reverted to its demand for over 8%. SA head of corporate affairs, Dilisem Gwedle, says there have been no negotiations with the union since it decided to go on strike. Everything is running as per normal. Uh, it's business as usual. Flights are taking off on time. There are currently no negotiations at the moment. Um, the union has not approached the airline to, to actually continue negotiations since um, they gave SAA's notice to strike uh, last week. The racial transformation of South Africa's urban-suburban housing market accelerated in the first two quarters of 2013, with white buyers for the first time numbering less than 50% for the year as a whole if this trend continues. This is according to estimates in First National Bank's later property barometer. The average estimated figure for the first two quarters show whites representing 46.5% of total buyers, blacks 32%, colors 9%, 
10 Indians, 12.5%. When the survey started in 2005, nearly 60% of all buyers were white. Egypt's central bank has received $2 billion in Saudi funds, the latest installment of a $12 billion aid package pledged by Gulf Arab states after the military ousted Islamist President Mohamed Morsi on July the 3rd. Egypt's finances in havoc from political strife since Egypt's uh, 2012 popular uprising worsened in the first five months of this year, with the budget deficit widening to almost half of all state spending. Foreign reserves dropped to $14.9 billion last month, representing less than the three months of inputs that the International Monetary Fund considers to be a minimum safe cushion. And developed countries need to be industrious like ants. This is according to American economist Peter Blair Henry in a new book, Third World Lessons from the First World Growth. He remarks that for years, third world countries have offered advice to developing countries on the best path to growth and should now benefit from heeding some of their own advice. Countries that were formerly called third world countries have used discipline to turn themselves around and become the emerging markets that are driving today's global growth. In 2012, the advanced nations grew at 1.3%. The emerging markets are still growing very strongly at 5.5%. And so it really struck me that we're at a critical point in the global economy, and in order for us to achieve a more prosperous future, the first world needs to learn, uh, ironically, from the third world. Taking a look at your financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 9.79 South African rand, at 0.65 to the British pound, and at 0.76 to the euro. One U.S. dollar is worth 8.49 Botswana pulas and 5.43 Zambian kwachas. Platinum is trading at $1,444.99 and gold at $1,327.07 an ounce. And finally, Brent crude oil is trading at $108.73 a barrel. That's all for now. We made it clear. Here's Samit Kouza standing by with your sporting update. In our sports update, after Cricket South Africa has held the appointment of Haran Logat as its new CEO, they have met with the Board of Control for Cricket in India to resolve the impasse surrounding the appointment of Haran Logat as the new Cricket South Africa CEO. The meeting was aimed at discussing and diffusing suggestions that India were going to pull out of their tour to South Africa as a result of Logat's appointment and over itinerary of the tour, which they are not happy about. Cricket South Africa's president, Chris Nenzan, says Logat's appointment as CEO is in the interest of South African cricket. Nenzane says the Cricket South Africa met the Indians to discuss the Logat issue. We made it clear to them, we said we would not undermine your concerns, would not ignore your concerns, but we would be in a position to look into this matter and say how best is the interest of CSA addressed and uh, we will take decisions uh, guided by what the interest of CSA is. And uh, we understand and appreciate the value of the friendship and the historic relationship that is there between India and South Africa. Meanwhile, Logat says he is saddened by the interferences made by the Indian board. Uh, I have to say that cricket South Africa comes first. So if it means that I had wronged somebody, 
and I need to apologize, so will I. I will do so. I will have no hesitation to do so. But I need to understand what it is, and I need to ensure that the two boards have the relationship that it always that it always had. And in fact, we better that relationship. And now in soccer, the Council of Southern African Football Associations, COSAFA, has declared the hosting of the COSAFA Challenge Cup in Zambia successful. The two-week soccer showpiece was held in Lusaka, in Quito, and in Dola. It was featuring 12 nations which form a regional body, and Kenya, who were invited from the Central and East African Football Association as a guest participating team. COSAFA President Seketu Patel says that despite the hiccups in the initial stages of the preparations, the staging of the 2013 COSAFA Cup will leave a lasting legacy of being one of the best organized tournaments after the regional body struggled to stage the 2009 competition. Everything that uh, we've been able to achieve has surpassed the initial expectations that we had. Because we're doing a major tournament after a number of years, we weren't certain as to the impact we would have, but the reception we've had in Zambia, the facilities that are put at our disposal, participation of the fans or the teams. Uh, in the end, it turned out to be a very, very nice tournament. The home-based Super Eagles will resume camp this evening ahead of the clash against the Elephants of Ivory Coast in the return leg of their 2014 African Nations Championships. The match will be played on Saturday at the Stade Felix Hamfiponier in Abidjan in Ivory Coast this coming weekend. Super Eagles are in the driving seat after winning the first leg 4-1 two weeks ago. Channel Africa's Tony Ubani reports. Super Eagles will from today alter their training schedule to evening time to coincide with the time the champ qualifier final and qualifier game will be played on Saturday in Abidjan. Head coach Steven Sechi has directed. Yesterday the players were given a free day after a hectic training session on Saturday morning that lasted for over two hours. With the technical crew saying the training was necessary to keep the players in top shape ahead of the return to training today evening. Saturday's training session, which was worked by NFL technical director Dr. Emmanuel Ikpeme and the popular All-Stars Club of Abuja was a delight to watch as the coaches seek to instill discipline and pattern order in the team ahead of the game in Abidjan. Meanwhile, the team will take on the Pastor Chinedu and Dr. Obiozikwe-Ezekwesele inspired team Everlasting Ampari State FC in a test game on Tuesday evening at the Gold Project site in Abuja. The last time both sides met in last year, the Super Eagles labeled to a slim 1-0 win in a game that was described as one of the best test matches for the team by head coach Keshi. And now in rugby, South African Craig Ube will referee Saturday's Super Rugby semi-final match between the Bulls and the Brumbies at Loftus Stadium. The first semi-final, the All-New Zealand affair between the Cheetahs and the Crusaders in Hamilton to be played earlier on Saturday, will be officiated by Steve Walsh of Australia. The Bulls' home semi-final against the Crusaders comes after they beat the Cheetahs in their playoffs on Sunday. Our rugby analyst, Vrem Strauss, previews both matches. The Vatican Bulls will be playing against the Brambridge from uh, ACT in Australia, coached by former Spimok coach Jake White. The game will be played at Loftus, so on ground advantage to the Bulls. Uh, they had a bye last weekend, were not necessary for them to play in, in the playoffs. Uh, the Brambridge were very lucky to have uh, beaten the Cheetahs, scoring five penalty goals to the Cheetahs two tries. And then in the other match, the defending champions, the Waikato Chiefs, will be in action against the Crusaders. The Crusaders convincingly beat the uh, Queensland Reds 3-8-9 on Saturday. They were very, very impressive. And if all things go according to plan, we might have a dream final next Saturday here at Loftus between the Bulls and the Crusaders. 
And that's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Khupedi Namane. This is Africa Digest. And that's how we wrap Africa Digest today. From myself, Kopediwana, Mane producer Leanda Maume, technical producer Charles Moyo, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you for listening. For comments on the show, send an email to info at channelafrica.org. That's info at channelafrica.org. Taking us now to top of the hour, here's Imalia Malobolo by Afrotraction. <laughs>